nothing can prepare you for the time that a doctor writes on a piece of paper diagnostic codes um, and pretty much saying, you know, this is the life that you should prepare for. Your child will probably not speak, probably not be independent, probably not do this. So many probably not do's and slides that across the desk. And it, it was just a piece of paper, but it was a paper that devastated us. You're listening to the Reframing Ministries podcast, providing help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through pain. Here's our host, Colleen Swindoll-Thompson. Hi, my name is Colleen Swindoll-Thompson, Director of Reframing Ministries at Insight for Living and the host of this podcast, which is called Reframing Ministries. And for everyone listening today, I want to tell you, if you've ever gone through a crisis in your life, crisis of faith, a surprise, an unexpected event that just landed you totally on your back, my guest today, Diane Doko Kim, totally understands. Diane, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Colleen, for having me. I am honored to be here. We are two moms who have children diagnosed with significant disabilities and probably could have two alphabet labels full of them (laughs) together. Mm -hmm. Diane has written a book which is life-changing, Unbroken Faith, Spiritual Recovery for the Special Need Parent. And I want to say right here, you don't have to be a special need parent to hear what we're going to talk about today. You just have to be someone trying to make it through life. But this book specifically comes from Diane's experiences of raising a child with significant special needs. Um, before we get into our content, Diane is the, is the mother of a child with disabilities, um, and the diagnosis caused a profound crisis of faith. That is what we share in common in many ways, Diane. Um, Since 2008, Diane has been working with Johnny and Friends. She's also done work with Christianity Today, Parenting Magazine, Moody Radio, Bible Gateway, Key Ministry, and several other places. You can find Diane at www.dianedokokim.com. I'll put those in the show notes because that's a lot of information. (laughs) Diane, I noticed that Johnny wrote the foreword in your work, and she said, Unbroken Faith offers medicine for hurting hearts. Diane pulls back the curtain on some of the toughest faith questions asked by parents of children with special needs. Excellent for support groups, church leaders, friends, family members, pastors, counselors, and she continues, her insights are a gift to you, a balm for your soul. Diane, this book embraces the soul of anyone trying to survive a difficult life. That's right. Can you tell me what prompted you to write this? Uh, This is a book that I had never planned to write. Uh, Back, I think it was in 2003, my husband and I and our, uh, I think he was 18 months at the time, we had returned from serving abroad on missions. And we committed ourselves to full-time ministry and experienced God in tremendous ways. And we committed to serve him. And um, we signed up for seminary and all of that. Uh, But our son wasn't speaking. And so we thought he might be confused over all the different languages that he'd heard. So we had him checked out for a speech delay. It wasn't that. It wasn't an issue with his hearing. And several months later, the results came back as autism. Mm-hmm. 
and we were gutted. We were absolutely destroyed. And honestly, I felt betrayed by God. Like, how could you do this to us? We just returned from the mission field and committed ourselves to full-time ministry. And this is what we get. And so, um, you know, being in ministry, sometimes you feel like you have to fake it till you make it, or at least that's how I felt. Mm. And so I felt like I had nowhere to go with all of the conflictedness and feeling betrayed, quite honestly. And so I wrestled with God and I basically poured everything I felt into a password protected document. And that's where (laughs) I really just went to town and did business with God and really struggled with his word for about five years. And so it was a journal. Um, It was really just my private place of struggling with God, like, you know, my own Mount Peniel. Um, And for about five years, I just poured into that document and struggled with the word of God. And then, um, in a way that only God can, he didn't necessarily heal my son, but he healed me. He healed my soul, my spirit. And so uh, fast forward a few years, God would end up repurposing that private password protected document that was just a resting place with me and God into using that uh, as a tool to comfort others with the comfort that I received from Christ. Yep. Uh, I noticed when you signed the book, Second um, Corinthians 1, which is one of my favorite passages, because it takes a while at times for God to, for us to feel the comfort from God. That's right. Um, the first quote you have in the book, which is outstanding, Ernest Hemingway, a, fa- a farewell to arms. The world breaks everyone, and afterward, some are strong at the broken places. And I thought, it's one thing, Jonathan, when he was young, broke his arm. It's one thing to hear about a broken arm. It's another thing to experience a broken arm. And I think what you wrote in this book is the experiences of living with a broken life. Mm -hmm. Because in the Christian world, we talk so much about, oh, I'm broken, I'm hurting, and oh, this is so hard. And, And yes, that's very true. But when Christ is breaking us, we are Mm. shattered. Mm -hmm. The diagnosis, you said, the piece of paper was like a slash between your head and your heart. Right. Tell me what that was like. Um, So we had several months of diagnoses and tests and evaluations. And, um, you know, I, I really think that was kind of a grace period, not just to prepare for the realities, the practical realities of being a family living with disability, but a grace period for me to deal with my own heart and prepare how I was going to receive this. But I think nothing can prepare you for the time that a doctor writes on a piece of paper, diagnostic codes, um, and pretty much saying, you know, this is the life that you should prepare for. Your child will probably not speak, probably not be independent, probably not do this. So many probably not do's and slides that across the desk. And it really just severed all connections between my head and my heart and whatever prior convictions that I had about God. And so it was just a piece of paper, but it was a paper that devastated us. It changed your entire life. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I wrote it down, DSM-4, which has been revised, but moderate to severe autism, severely disabled, mentally retarded, cognitively mm-hmm. impaired, nonverbal, aggressive, interventions needed, speech therapy, occupational therapy, auxiliary supports, strongly advised, prognosis unknown, while grieving the death of my idealized child. Well-meaning church friends attempted to console with encouraging words and Bible verses. Oh, God won't give you more than you can handle. (laughs) Special needs kids are a blessing. (laughs) I want to go come live in my house and find out what that kind of blessing is like. (laughs) You can take my blessing. It's it's really okay. (laughs) But how one thing 
flipped everything upside down. Was your husband with you? Um, I think at the appointment he wasn't um, because it was during the daytime. But of course, he was with me all the way through afterwards. So you got in the car. What were your emotions? You know, I can't even remember, Colleen. I think I was in just such a daze. I remember clearly him sliding the paper across the desk, me looking at it. And I, I honestly, I think I, I don't remember anything after that. I was just in such a daze for the next, I don't know, maybe a week or so of just processing this. Yes. Yeah. And you were watching behaviors start to emerge. Did they all come at once or was this kind of an emerging unfolding? Well, I think it was tricky because, um, first of all, he was our first child. And so even though we had done years and years of being aunts and uncles to other people's kids and years and years of being Sunday school teachers, somehow it's different. You have different eyes when it comes to your own child. And so it was our first child. We didn't know anything different. And also we were living abroad. Um, and so it's not like he was with other kids his age that I could really compare it to. Um, and so we actually did not really have a sense that his behaviors were atypical until other people uh, people that we trusted started to speak that into our lives. And so we're really grateful for those other people, that village around us that had the sense and the wherewithal and the commitment to our family to kind of pull us aside and go, you know what, we're a little bit concerned about your son's development. Okay, so that's a real risk for people to do. So you definitely had a safe community Yes. to speak into that. Um, you had church People say, God won't give you more than you can handle. <laughs> and then you had others saying, you know, you want to check into this. And then you have the diagnosis. How do you bring those two together? Yeah. Um, I think we had a pretty unique situation in that um, we were at a church. It was a small church. It really felt like a village. And we had been there for a good, I want to say, 10, 15 years at that point. And the first person to bring it to our attention was a pediatrician. Hmm. Um, he was a pediatrician, so this is what he does. And so um, he didn't know us that well. So he actually spoke to the senior pastor and expressed his concerns to the senior pastor. And the senior pastor and his wife, whom we had a really tight relationship with, actually sat us down and said, you know what? Um, Dr. Ken uh, expressed to us that he has some concerns about Jeremy. So we wanted to talk to you about that. So um, in the context of a committed trusting relationship, that's where we had the room for them to speak that kind of news into us. So yeah, a relationship makes all the difference. Otherwise, this could be a very explosive potential conversation to come up to somebody and say, hey, I think something's wrong with your kid. So if you were a parent looking on, if you were the pediatrician, mm -hmm. how would you approach that in a safe way? Oh, gosh. I think God really gave us grace with this unique situation because he was a pediatrician, so you know he had the credibility there. Um, but at the same time, he knew that he wasn't that close and familiar with us to have that direct conversation with us, and so he shared that with our pastor. Which you know, in that context, we had the relationship. And I think this is just a general rule of thumb of um, difficult news or truth speaking. Um, the, how much room you have to speak that really is directly proportional to the depth of relationship you have with a person. That's key. Yeah. So you had a deeper relationship, and it was safe. Yeah. And, and he, approached, he approached you how? <laughs> and so he asked to come over, and we're like, oh, okay. You know, when your senior pastor asks, hey, can we sit down and talk with you guys immediately? <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I, 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 you're like, oh, gosh, what do we do? <laughs> and so we were already on edge. 
But, uh, you know, he came over, he and his wife came over and sat us down and just so graciously, so compassionately shared with us uh, what Dr. Ken uh, had shared with him. And it was a hard conversation. Mm-hmm. It was hard, obviously. Um, but it was the beginning. But we could trust them. We knew that their love and their commitment was with us. And so um, it really opened up a journey that we could start to take together. And so that was the beginning of it. And that's when we started seeking out all the evaluations and such. So <clears throat> you get the report and you're numb for, mm-hmm. I mean, a week is, is you know, minimum in my book. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then we read the God of all comfort who comforts us. You know, we just referred to that. Yeah. But I recall many days where I felt no comfort. Yeah. I felt no, I felt completely tricked by God. That's right. I felt duped. I was like, I've trusted you with my life. And mm-hmm. uh, okay, so this is all about me, huh? I've <laughs> done Bible studies and all, you know, teaching and Christian school, blah, blah, blah. Right. So this is it. And now I'm calling out to you and I don't, you're not even there. Yeah. There are people right now who are feeling that, experiencing that, hating it. Mm-hmm. Can you speak into that? And um, I'll be honest with you. Um, at the beginning, there was no space or room for any of that, oh, God is with you. And, you know, um, there was no room for any of that. I was grieving. I was angry. I was pissed. I mean, can we say that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We could say I, a whole yeah. lot of things. <laughs> I was pissed. <laughs> And again, for five years, Colleen, I raged at the skies and I had my fist raised to the heavens of how could you do this to us? This is what we get after we have committed to serve you. We went up to the other side of the planet. All of the things, Colleen, that you just said. And so um, I think it's important that we recognize that God validates and recognizes our feelings. Mm. Feelings are real. Feelings are valid. And I think somewhere in, you know, the Christian or faith community, we have this misconception that we need to squelch negative feelings or squelch doubt. And we need to look no further than the book of Psalms. I mean, that's like the thickest book in the entire Bible. And it is just all full of the psalmist going, God, do you see this? How could you do this to us? Do you care? Um, Are you living? How can you let me go through this? And so God honors and he considers our feelings valid and important. I mean, he dedicates a considerable amount of real estate in the Bible to validate our feelings. So there is that. So feelings are real, they're valid, but they're also deceptive. Mm. Feelings are deceptive. Our feelings can convince us to despair, that God doesn't exist, that no one cares. Sometimes our feelings, if we really let them go there, can convince us that sometimes we may be better off gone. Mm. But feelings and dark feelings lie. So they're very real and they're valid, but they're also deceptive. And sometimes the enemy can use those feelings to twist us into believing lies. Hmm. Yeah. So um, the way that I describe grief is I outlined it as an acrostic, gritty, raw, invasive, encapsulating, and fierce. Yes. Grief does not have a narrow path it has an unexpected path. Mm-hmm. But like you just said, somewhere along the way, we've been taught feelings are negative feelings are wrong. 
and positive feelings are right. In fact, mm-hmm. I did a, um, I looked at Brene Brown's work, Rising Strong, and she said, here are some of the rules that we believe about emotions. Emotions are a sign of being vulnerable, and vulnerability is weakness. Mm-hmm. Another one is don't ask, don't tell. You can feel all the emotions, but there's nothing to be gained by sharing it with others, which mm-hmm. I want to go, hmm, where was David in that process? Mm-hmm. Um, another one, we don't have access to emotional language or a full emotional vocabulary. So just stay quiet or make fun of it. Mm. Another rule is to stay numb and don't discuss anything. Kind of pull ourselves up by, own, by our own bootstraps. Right. Um, we're uncomfortable with emotions that I think we have never allowed ourselves to feel. Therefore, we don't have the space to give others um, room to grieve. Right. So what did you do with the grief that would pop up at the grocery store and you'd leave your cart in the middle of it or <laughs> at Christmas when you're shopping and you have no idea what to get a child who has no idea how to play independently? Right. What did you do? I think one of the things that was so key that we did do right, and I know that that was the hand of God, was to give myself permission to grieve, Mm. to feel all the feels, to feel all the conflicted, you know, the feelings that you're not supposed to feel, the things that you're not supposed to think. Um, I gave myself permission to fully feel all of that. So giving myself permission to grieve and also giving my husband permission to grieve and recognizing we grieve in different ways. That's key. Yeah. Otherwise it would be, and it was so dangerously close and easy for us to tear each other apart because we grieve differently. Mm. Um, And I think also I had to struggle with, you know, we're church leaders. We have to look like we have it together, or at least that's how I felt. You know, my husband would go up there. He was a worship leader at the time. And so he'd go up and, you know, exhort the congregation to trust in God. And meanwhile, the worship leader's wife is sitting in the back pew with her arms crossed going, "Mm, I'm not feeling it. You guys can do this, but I'm not doing it. And that's why I'm sitting in the back pew because I don't think I have permission to look like that. And so there's a tension and there's a balance between being authentic and being real and being vulnerable before God. It's not like he doesn't know what's going on under the hood anyway, Hmm. um, but at the same time, being responsible for my face, not being um, reckless, not being vulnerable and just bleeding and barfing all over for the sake of doing it um, and being responsible um, to honor God. But yeah, it is a tension. But I think the first thing, first base is to give ourselves permission to grieve, but to grieve up, take it to the right place. If I were to just hurl and barf and spew and be bitter, you know, either people that I'm reaching out to, that I'm in care of, that would be irresponsible of me. Hmm. So to grieve, but to grieve in the right direction, take it up because only God is big enough to handle all of that toxicity. Which is exactly what David does. Yeah. I mean, he pours out his soul and his guts, and he says anything and everything, but then he turns it around and reminds himself, but I will worship you, and I will praise you, and That's I right. will follow you. And Habakkuk does the same thing. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't see anything in the vineyard. I don't see anything on the ground or on the trees or anything that lets me know there's even creation going on. <laughs> and yet, I will stay here, and I will trust you. Right. There's a lot of bandwidth between that kind of anger and that kind of resolve. I don't think there's any other place to take it except up to the Lord. That's right. Um, Did you have a group of friends that you could speak to, or did you feel very isolated? I think by nature, when something 
devastating happens to you, you feel isolated. And I think part of it is just the unique nature of special needs parenting as well. It is a very unique experience. And, you know, every, especially when we're talking about autism, you know, no two, you know, individual with autism, you know, presents alike. And, you know, we all know that, but, um, by nature, it's isolating. I think trauma feels isolating. And a lot of times the enemy will take advantage of that to make you feel like you're the only one dealing with this. So there is that. Um, but I think, again, I was uniquely blessed in that I had a tight community of friends rally around me, my women friends. And I think it's also easier for women to you know, be authentic with our feelings. We can go to our girlfriends and say, this sucks. My life is a disaster. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And so I had that grace of friends that flocked around me, um, Christian friends. I think it was a little bit of a different experience for my husband because it is different for men. Um, it is different for fathers. I mean, they're going through their own process of grief differently and just the dynamics of men. Um, they feel like they have to look like they have it together for their sake of their families. And so it's harder for them to be authentic. Um, and there's something in a man that feels like he can't let himself be vulnerable. So, um, yeah, it was an interesting dynamic of, of working through that, but I was grateful for, uh, the sisters that flocked around me to really be that support for me. Yes. When Jonathan was diagnosed in, um, 1999, there was one in 10,000 with autism. Mm. Now today, one in four families have a loved one with a disability. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're looking at a church pew, there's probably more than four people sitting on it. That touches a lot of people, and that's very, very isolating. Mm -hmm. I knew no one who right. had a child with autism. Um, how can people come around and create safety for those, for women who are going through a catastrophic event and be there for them? What does that look like? Um, Colleen, I so resonate with what you just said, because I think for me, like when the news hit, I kind of struggled with this triple whammy, <laughs> triple whammy of, you know, we were in the church. So, and we were church leaders. So we felt like we had to look like we had it together and they weren't like, you know, cursing God out or anything. Um, <laughs> and also as a daughter, you know, as a dutiful daughter and I, I I'm Asian American. So I actually come from this culture that is very much shame based. And so there's a stigma associated with disability and just being different. Um, and so, you know, I'm dealing with the culture, uh, my family of origin, I'm, you know, dutiful wife and a daughter, I'm not supposed to rock the boat. And, you know, we're church people, we're supposed to trust in God in all the circumstances and honor him and all of that. So there's this triple whammy that just felt really oppressive. Yes. Um, and so I think the first thing that I really needed was a safe place to be real that I could be vulnerable. Everything that Brene Brown talks about, um, and not just extreme vulnerability, but just a safe place. And so I think, um, yeah, it's unfortunate that the faith community feels like the first thing that we need to go to is put something on it to fix it. <laughs> you cannot, Say, you can't fix it. That's right. <laughs> And so, you know, you'll get the memory verses, you'll get the quotes like, oh, God only gives special children to special parents. And you're like, oh, I'm not feeling so special. You know, this is a blessing and all of the things that mean well. But really, it's just acid upon an existing open gaping wound. And so um, I, there's one expression that Pastor Rick Warren says that I love. And he came up with this after he was grieving the loss of his son. He says, people in pain don't need, you know, scripture. They don't need advice. They just need you to show up and shut up. 
Show up and shut up. <laughs> I love that, right? Yeah. That's Just great. show up and shut up. And I think people feel obligated to come and say the right things or do the right things. But you know what? There's really nothing you could say or do to alleviate this situation. I mean, even Jesus, you know, in his greatest time of need, he asked his friends, can you just sit with me? You know, what could his friends really say or do to fix the calling or the situation that he was in? But he just asked compassion, sit with me, suffer with me. And so I think the greatest gift that my friends were able to do was they weren't able to fix it. The only thing they could have said was, hey, I've got the cure for autism in this bag. But what they were able to do was sit with me in my pain. Don't feel like you had to say anything. Don't feel like you have to preach at me. But the greatest gift they brought was what I call the emotional barf bag. They brought me an emotional barf bag and they trusted that I would fill it. And I did. And you did. And I did. (laughs) It was a big bag. Absolutely. And they had backups and it was awesome. (laughs) And so... You know, it's kind of like when you're sitting with a friend who's physically sick, there's nothing you can really do to help them along, but you can comfort them. You can pull their hair back when they're heaving into the toilet. You could just sit and be with them in their pain. And so my friends who came and brought the emotional barf bag, they just sat with me. They'd let me say what was in my heart Mm -hmm. without judgment, without memory verses, without, well, Diane, you're a Christian, so you should sound better and you should, you know, believe in God. I am believing in God. This is the best that I can do right now. Right. And so just to sit with a person in their pain um, and be there, suffer with. So show up, shut up, uh, let your friends fill the emotional barf bag and just let them do it without judgment. You know, it's interesting that you say um, we can't fix it. God already knows. And he's in the process of transforming us. Yes. So we need to get out of the way. Yes. Because a lot of times our words get in the way. Mm. So when we show up and serve— that's that's being Jesus to somebody. It's not saying, "Oh my goodness, you need to you know panic, panic, panic," which is more about the person showing up than it is yeah. about the issue. That's Attending right. to the issue, which is, I have no idea what I would do either. Yeah. I cannot imagine what you are going through. Were there any um, books or resources that you read at that time when you were grappling with your faith, trying to hang on to it because it was. It was totally falling through the cracks. Yeah. And honestly, that's partially why I wrote this book. Um, I read somewhere, you know, that said, if a book doesn't exist that meets the need that you have, then you need to write it. And that's pretty much the birth and the genesis of this book. Um, I found that there were so many secular and practical resources about how to help your kid, you know, therapy, toilet training, uh, academic supports, and just so many of those kinds of things but so few resources that really scratched where I itched in my soul and that really pointed me to God as my ultimate source of help. Um, There were books that existed. I mean, pioneers like Jolene Philo, Mm -hmm. um, you know, her devotional for caregivers and just, but there were so few and I was so starving at that point. And it's ironic because there were so many supports and therapy and helps for our son, which was absolutely necessary, but so few interventions and supports for us as parents. And so, um, and I really believe that God uh, transformed what we went through um, and really birthed the idea of this book so that it could minister to parents that are in that situation and in that season. One of the things that I really do love about the book is that you start out with a personal story and then you bring in a story from scripture Mm -hmm. that is so similar and then you tie it up at the end and provide promises from God's word that... Sometimes I want to read. Sometimes I don't want to read. Mm. And then a prayer. 
and then reflective questions. See, that the whole reframing process is about being torn down and then trying to figure out, how do I move forward? And that's exactly how each chapter is, which is they're each short, but they are profound. In fact, one of the chapters you talk about renovation and rebuilding, it always starts with demolition. And I'm thinking of all the, you know, property brothers and Chip and Joanna who <laughs> I'm like, they rip those houses apart. But yet at the end we see something beautiful, but it must be torn apart first. Right. Did you feel just shredded? Yeah, I, we felt tension in every direction, tension within ourselves, obviously tension and conflict with God and, and conflict and tension with each other. Um, absolutely. Yeah, it just, it was the absolute worst feeling ever that every hope that you had for yourself, for your marriage, for your child, for your family is just completely gutted and you're having to start all over. And it's really a wrestling I found with with God. Like, okay, you were the ultimate source and, and control of all of this. And you've messed up everything that I ever wanted, even dreams that I didn't even articulate. Mm. Um, and so it is definitely a demolition of all of our life's ambitions, our dreams that we hadn't even articulated yet, and really letting God have his way in us. Um, and I, I think I found that all of the head knowledge that we had as church kids and mm. church people um, it felt awkward. I knew what the Sunday school answers were. I knew what the Bible said. You know, we went elsewhere to tell other people about it. But it's that head knowledge we had to actually choose to believe. You know, God's word says, yeah, he's going to redeem. He's going to repurpose. Do I really believe that about God? Yeah. Um, every story, every character that went through hard things, but God redeemed according to his purposes. Do I really believe that? Do I really believe that about me? And so do I really believe this Bible? And that's really the essence of this book too, of what does the Bible have to do with the nitty gritty realities of my life that really sucks right now? <laughs> does God exist? Does he care? How can he let this happen? And what does the Bible have to do with this? And so letting him destroy and, you know, demolition and rebuild my faith mm who I was, and rebuilding and redefining what blessing is according to God's terms. And I love your dog in the background. This is so much like our lives. I mean, it just, it continues. Hi, little guy. I'm We've sorry. got two special needs parents trying to record a podcast. That's okay. I have three special needs dogs at home right now. They're all on medication. We're all medicated. What? Let me ask you this. What are some things that you and your husband did well, and what are some ways that you did not, what are some things that you did not do well as you guys both processed this tug of war with God? Yeah. Um, I don't know whether it's a matter of doing well or whether it's a matter of screwing it up and then course correcting. And then that's why we did things well. But I think the first thing is giving ourselves permission to grieve, um, to grieve in our own way. And a lot of times that means space and time. Hmm. Um, I remember at the beginning when we first got the diagnosis and we were sitting in meetings, you know, early intervention meetings. And I remember several weeks or months had gone by and my husband asked um, the therapist, so when can our son start attending regular classes? And I just looked at him like, what? Oh my gosh. Yeah. He thinks this is like a cold or a temporary <laughs> situation. Like, and I'm th looking at him going, what part of lifelong disability did you not understand? <laughs> mm. And so that's kind of when it dawned on me 
that, wow, we're really going through the same set of circumstances, but processing them completely differently. And so, um, I was frustrated and you know, me, I was doing the mom thing. I was grieving. I was crying. I was raging. And then I rolled up my sleeve and I said, okay, let's get, let's fix this. Let's get involved. Let's, let's do this. Um, but my husband was just kind of, I don't know what he was doing. He was just processing things differently. He wasn't crying. I wanted him to cry with me, but there was something in him that said, no, I can't cry. I need to be strong for the family. And so, um, letting each other grieve and process differently. Hmm. And unfortunately, I've seen so many couples really struggle with this. You know, it, it usually follows a similar pattern where mom's like, okay, we got to fix this. Um, I expect the husband to be with me in this, but um, you know, g- God has wired men differently to feel somewhat responsible that this happened on their watch, um, even though it's not their fault. Um, and so that's why they're dealing with this in a different way. And so giving each other space, time uh, to grieve differently and to, interact with each other, recognizing that, okay, the person that I'm dealing with right now, the person I'm potentially fighting with right now is not a healthy person. Mm. This is a heart sick person. This is a person that is grieving. And so this is not the person that we exchanged vows with on our wedding day when everything was just so perfect and lovely and white and glowing. Exactly. (laughs) We are at the worst places of where we could possibly be as two individuals. And ironically, we're having to work this out under the same household. So did you try to fix him and did he try to fix you or? I don't, yeah, I don't know if he tried to fix me, but I definitely tried to fix him. I would, I remember prodding him going, why aren't you crying like I'm crying? Don't you care? Don't you get this? Um, because my instinct was to cry, right. to cry and process. Um, but something in his hardwiring says, I can't cry. And we had this discussion much later on when he did start to really process Um, He said, I felt like I couldn't cry because I felt like I had to be strong for you. I felt like I had to be strong as a man. I felt like I had to look like I had it together. Um, I'm I'm a ministry leader. I'm the worship leader. I'm, you know, in charge of this family. I'm responsible. I can't be falling apart because you guys are depending on me. And it kind of went, that was like an aha moment for me, like, Oh, so you weren't just being a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) You were actually supporting me. (laughs) Yeah, you were actually supporting me. You were on my side. Mm -hmm. You were trying, you were sacrificing in your own way, in the best way that you knew how, in your own woundedness to help us. So it's not like you were trying to screw us over. You were actually trying to help. And so coming to that understanding of what it's like for the other from their vantage point, I think also helped us. So grieving, letting ourselves grieve differently and trying to understand where the other person is coming from and recognizing we're on the same team. We may be going about things differently, but we're all just pedaling as hard as we can, given that we've got faulty pedals. And you're, yeah, and sometimes you feel like you're getting nowhere. In fact, I did find this, um, when we speak again about emotions, because so many times men and women, well, we do grieve differently because our brains are wired differently. Right. And they're thinking, I've got to fund this. This is how much for therapies and insurance doesn't cover that while you're chasing down therapists and trying to find out how am I going to manage all this. But the emotions, again, we're going to touch back on that because it affects us in every way. I found um, several studies on the physical effects of suppressed emotions, Mm. mental lapses. A Stanford study showed that intentionally suppressed emotions impairs our memory Mm. and it affects our sleep. We have mental fog. There's less oxytocin released, which is a peptide hormone, a neuropeptide, which is produced by well, we won't go into all the neural parts. You and I are interested in that, but not <laughs> everyone else is. But it's part of a bonding process. 
um, elevated blood pressure, negative emotional energy, and that hurts our organs in our body. So when he started to express emotions, how did you respond? It was a tremendous relief to me. Um, Of course, you know, if he had his breakdown moment, I'm trusting that he did in the safety of his, you know, brothers that, you know, eventually kind of rallied around and figured out, okay, a brother needs us. Um, It was a relief to me because it affirmed, okay, we are on the same team. We are processing this similarly. It just may look different on the outside. Mm. Um, And then we could work together knowing that we were on the same team. And did you ever have to say, we're going to go out and we're not going to talk about autism? (laughs) That's what everybody tells you to do. I know. know, All of the self-care. Good good luck. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And we knew that, you know, do the date nights and all of that. We try to, but, you know, the reality is just really difficult. Um, I think there's also seasons You know, when you're in the thick of it, in the steepest part of the learning curve, there is nothing else but this. There is nothing else but survival. And I think that's okay. It's appropriate for that season um, of scrambling, but you can't sustain that long term. Right. That can't be your mode your entire life. Diane, I'm going to take, we're going to take a break right here because um, this is too good this information is too needed for us to hurry through it. And we have so much more to talk about. So if you're listening um, right now, I want to tell you, Diane Doko Kim has written Unbroken Faith, Spiritual Recovery for the Special Need Parent. And we are talking about how do we recover when our faith has been shattered? We're going to continue that in our next session together. I want to thank you for listening to Reframing Ministries podcast as I've been talking with Diane Doko Kim on how do we recover from life's difficulties. Please rate and review the Reframing Ministry podcast, however you receive your podcast, just so we can get that information into the hearts and souls of those who are hurting. You can get a hold of Diane Doko Kim at her website, which is Diane Doko, D-O-K-K-O, Kim, K-I-M, dot com. Is that right, Diane? Mm -hmm, That's right. All right. And all of her stuff is there. But I want to encourage you, please check out Unbroken Faith. It is a recovery guide if you are, for any time you go through those moments where you don't even think God is there. He doesn't exist or he's tricked you in some way. This is a landing spot for you. It's like a huge embrace. So thank you so much for tuning in. And please listen to our part two of my talk with Diane.